0: Good morning. Thanks for being here on this rainy Sunday. We'll be continuing in the book of Philippians this morning. So turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be in the first 11 verses there. Philippians chapter 2. And as we've been doing as of late, I'd invite you, if you're able, to stand with us for the reading of God's Word out of reverence And I want to pray again that he would bless our time together in the word. So join me as we stand and read together Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Father, as we open up your word, as we handle your word, we confess that we need the help of your spirit in giving us understanding in illuminating its meaning to our hearts and in also helping us to, to apply it to our lives, to believe it fully, to obey it. We pray that your spirit would be at work through the preaching of your word this morning. We pray that your people would be built up and edified. We pray that the name of your son, Jesus Christ, would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we've been talking a lot about the theme of unity as it's come up in the book of Philippians so far. And for good reason. Uh, Our church is going through a season where that's a good conversation to have. But also, let's just face it, whether it's church, whether it's a Christian school, whether it's a, a Christian nonprofit, or whether it's our own Christian homes, Whatever sphere we find ourselves in, let's just be honest and admit that us Christians aren't the easiest people to be around sometimes. Can I get an amen? <laughs> we're not. We, we can be rather difficult people. <laughs> and maybe, maybe there's a visitor in the room who's not a believer who's like, yeah, absolutely. But the truth is is that we're just not always the easiest people uh, to be around and so, Paul has been talking around this, that he wants us to be unified in the gospel. Um, Philippians one twenty seven kind of set the tone. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so he talks around this need to walk worthy of the gospel, and we talked about that last week. But this week we'll see in, in chapter 2, he gets more explicit about his aims and his desires. And specifically, that in order to suffer well for the sake of the gospel and for our mission together, which we've been talking about, we need unity. And not just fad unity, not, you know, hold your hands and sing kumbaya and we are the world and perfect stock photo with every ethnic ratio kind of unity, but real unity rooted in the objective work of Christ. And so this morning we'll see that our, our, our unity depends on having the humility of Christ in His example of suffering and His exaltation. Our unity depends on having the humility of the mind of Christ in His example in suffering and exaltation. So there's some hard words on humility that we'll address in the first four verses, and then some glorious gospel gems and their cosmic implications that we'll see in the remainder of the passage up through verse 11 there. So, Paul begins with this exhortation to humility, and that's our first point. The exhortation to humility found in those first four verses, and I'll read them again. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and of course he's, he's asking all these questions sort of implied. If there's anything good, if there's anything praiseworthy, right? He's, he's not making his appeal purely authoritatively. He's not being authoritarian, but he's choosing instead to be authentic. He's not being pushy, but he's being pastoral. And we should hear his tone in there. He's not demanding unity, but he's pleading with them. If there's any encouragement in Christ, right? If 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 we have anything in common as a body of believers, in Christ, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, in love for each other, then, and Paul makes his appeal on the basis of that, he says, then fulfill my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And Paul repeats himself and he uses these different phrases here, but he's getting around some of the same ideas. And notice that there's an objective basis to the unity, but there's also a subjective basis to the unity. The objective basis of our unity as believers is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Right? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. But the subjective basis by which God works out that unity and binds us together in real time and in real life is our love for one another. So unity affects our head, our heart, and our hands. Unity affects our head. You see the word faith Uh, Used in verse 127, he talks about being of one mind, being of one accord in verse 2. It affects our hearts. He talks about if there's any affection, any sympathy in verse 1, any love in verse 2. And it affects our hands, what we do, because he says do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So there's action involved as well. Another way that you could put it is that our unity is doctrinal, doxological, and devotional. It concerns our head in knowing the truth about God, our hearts in feeling and in worshiping and responding to God and in going out to each other in service, in deeds of of devoted action and love and service to each other, head, heart, and hands. This is the unity that Paul is getting after. And just notice he says, verse 2, complete my joy." Of course, if you've been tracking with us, you know that Paul wrote this from prison while he was in house arrest in Rome. And he says, complete my joy by being of one mind. So here's Paul in this miserable state in which he's not even free to leave the confines of this house under constant guard. And he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. In other words, Paul's satisfied as long as the church in Philippi that he's writing to is unified. As long as they've got it together, he can sit there in prison, joyful. So Paul takes this... Incredibly serious. And then in verses 3 and 4, we see, well, what is the root of the division in the body of Christ? Personal pride is the root of this division in the body. It's a failure to consider others. Because unity in the body of Christ demands humility from all of us. So he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So let's just take verse 3 here. Do nothing from, and then he lists two things, selfish ambition or conceit. When we read those words, selfish ambition, to begin, that should ring a bell because Paul just mentioned selfish ambition in chapter 1. Look with me to chapter 1, verse 17. He's talking about the fact that there's some who are out there preaching the gospel to afflict him in his chains. And there's others that are doing it sincerely. In verse 17, he says, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. So not even evangelists are immune from this, Paul is saying. Anything can be done out of selfish ambition, and that can drive a wedge within the body of Christ. And specifically, even ministry, preaching the gospel can be one of these things that's done out of selfish ambition. Of course, to not preach the gospel is even more selfish, right? How can we keep this to ourselves and not share this good news that saves with other people? And I fall short of that standard on a daily basis. But ministry in particular... Those of us who serve, those of us who teach occasionally, those of us who lead in other areas, maybe it's not within the walls of the church, maybe it's outside the church. But ministry, for some reason, is a really fertile ground for selfish ambition and for lust after influence. It's incredibly dangerous when selfish ambition is what drives our ministry. And I think it's important to slow down and look at the the phrase selfish ambition. Is ambition itself always wrong? Some would say yes. In fact, there's that idea today in in many parts of the church, and there was that idea in Paul's day. Paul talked about his own ambition in Romans chapter 15, verses 19 through 20. If you recall, he says, My ambition is to preach Christ where he has not been named, lest I build on another man's foundation. So Paul's missionary desire and effort and vision was to preach the gospel to the unreached. Not to those who had been reached, who hadn't heard the gospel. He didn't want to just come in and, and seize upon the work that someone else had already done. He wanted to preach Christ where no one had heard of him yet in the Roman world. That's a godly ambition, and there is such a category as godly ambition. So what's the difference? The difference, as we'll see in the next phrase, is who is glorified. If my ministry ambition is about my personal glory, that is what Paul is repudiating. If my ambition is to preach Christ, if my ambition is for the glory and honor of His name, well, that's a godly ambition. So the question is, who is glorified in my ambitions and my goals in life? That would be a good question for us to ask ourselves this week as we continue to meditate on this passage. But look at the next word here. He says, do nothing out of conceit. The word conceit here... Could be more literally translated with a word that's fallen out of our vernacular, which is vainglory. It's glorying in what is vain and what is not glorious and what is empty. And so you, you can see how this sort of conceitedness, this conceitfulness, this glorifying in myself and the things about myself that are empty and vain and not ultimately meaningful, not as glorious and weighty as the things of God, you can see how this conceit would breed discord. Because if I'm busy thinking about myself, I'm not thinking about you. I'm not thinking about others. I'm not thinking of the person in the pew next to me. So he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit or vainglory. And remember that, by the way, that word. Remember the word vainglory there because that will become important. But notice that humility is this means by which unity in the body of Christ is maintained. The objective basis of our unity is the work of Christ, but humility and esteem for others, prioritizing others' needs above our own, that's how the unity is maintained. And so he says, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I don't know about you, but in part, I'm grateful that the word only uh, is in there, at least inserted in there by translators, because obviously each of us of necessity has to have some concern for our own interests, right? There's some level of self-maintenance that's necessary. I have to feed myself. I have to clothe myself. And no one's denying that. You know, we get in a tailspin of debate about this in the the movement on on social media, and you see it outside of that realm, too, called self-care. Right, And people talk about prioritizing self-care. Well, what does that look like? Because there are times in life when self-maintenance is necessary. You know, the, the analogy of when you're on a plane and the oxygen masks drop out, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to put yours on first and then help someone else. And there are times in life when I have to make sure that my own basic needs are met so that I have the capacity to help others with need. And no one would deny that. But the myth that often flies under this self-care hashtag banner is that my needs actually rank higher than those of the people around me. And so the the analytical question, the diagnostic question that we asked before, the difference between selfish ambition and godly ambition was who's glorified? Well, the question that we ask here, what's the difference between self-care and self-maintenance? Is my self-maintenance actually helping me serve others or is it self-serving? Is all of my me time, is all of my time spent on my own interests actually equipping me to better love and serve the people around me? You know, is my hour of free time, whatever, is that actually helping me have more to give to others? Or is it purely a selfish uh, endeavor? Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So the Christian ethic says that others' needs are more important than ourselves, that that we should look at other people as though they're more significant. Even though there's no real distinction in the body of Christ, everyone is of equal significance. The ground, as we said earlier, is level at Calvary, but we should esteem others as though they are, in fact, more important than us. So this is the exhortation to humility. And unity demands that kind of humility. But having given this this pleading pastoral uh, exhortation to the people, Paul turns to the blueprint next. And so in the second point, we'll see the example of Christ. Looking first at his humiliation in verses 5 through 8. This is an extremely significant passage of Scripture. It's called the Christ hymn or the Carmen Christi. Now, this is an incredible apologetic argument, by the way, if you're in conversation with unbelievers. The book of Philippians is from somewhere between 49 to 51 A.D. Okay, So you're talking no more than 20 years after the events of Christ's death and resurrection. And some people believe that these verses here, where Paul uh, seems to to go into a little bit of a, a poetic tone, talking about the work of Christ, many scholars are convinced that this is actually an early hymn that was circulated orally in the church. So if that's true, Paul was quoting on something pre-existing. So if he's writing 20 years later, maybe this hymn is from 10 years before Paul wrote or 15 years before Paul wrote. We don't know. But the bottom line is that we see, whether it's circulated orally or whether it's in just this letter, you have within two decades of the events of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection itself, you have a body of Christians on the other side of the Roman Empire and across the ocean, not in Judea, but you have a body of a movement happening where people were convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead, convinced enough to sing about it. And 20 years is not enough time for that kind of mythology to grow up. We're not talking about centuries later. We're not talking about millennia later when things can be mythologized. We're talking about someone, Jesus of Nazareth, who had just died two decades earlier. And So this is incredible circumstantial evidence the fact that Christ had been raised and people were convinced that they were eyewitnesses of his resurrected life. But notice in verse 5, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves. Some translations you might have, let this mind be in you, but the Greek there is active. It's not saying, let this mind happen to you. It's not saying, you know, let this just come upon you naturally. He's saying, have this mind. Embrace this mindset. Do it. It's an imperative and so he presents Christ to us as our example. You know, we talk a lot, especially in the Reformed branch of Christianity, about the finished work of Christ. Christ is more than an example to us, right? We we don't believe that Christ is just a moral example of the best way to live or an example of nonviolence. That's not the Christ that we worship. His finished work is something that we could never do for ourselves. He died the death for sinners that we could never bear to handle ourselves. He rose in our place and he imputes his perfect righteousness and his life and obedience to us as though we had lived that perfect life so that by faith his righteousness becomes ours and what's true for him becomes true of us. That's the Christ that we worship and follow. Christ is more than an example for us, but he's not less than an example for us. We can't miss the fact that he is an example for us, even though he's also more than an example for us. And so Paul presents Christ to us as an example here. And this is important because I think there's this idea out there in culture that Christianity is just about love. It's just about unity. It's just about getting along and humility. And those things, love in particular, are at the ground floor of the, the building of the Christian life, the ground floor of Christian ethics. But the foundation beneath that isn't just an abstract ethic or moral principle or 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 theory, philosophy. The foundation is the historic work of Christ. The foundation is what Jesus actually did in time and space that we're about to get into. Christianity is not just about love. Love is an implication of the thing that Jesus did in history. So to grapple with the claims of Christianity is not just to embrace that love is a good way to live your life. To grapple with the claims of Christianity is to deal with what Jesus did in time and space. What we're getting ready to observe in a matter of weeks with Good Friday and Easter coming up. And so if if you look at how Christ humbles himself, how Christ is presented as this example to us, one of the reasons many scholars think that this is possibly a hymn is that there's some parallelism happening. There's certainly a heightening effect to a lot of the language. And if you count, it depends how you count. Different people count different ways. But when I was counting, I counted seven different levels of humiliation. And so whether you count five or whether you count twenty-five, I'm going to use seven because it's a nice number, the number of perfection. (laughs) Uh, But I'm going to count seven levels of humiliation that Christ undergoes on our behalf. And so the first level is given to us in verse six, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. So though he was in the form of God, he did not count. He did not regard his humility. His, his equality with God, a thing to be grasped. So even before Jesus steps into human flesh, there's a decision that happens in his head. He doesn't regard his divine privilege and status as a thing to be held onto with a white-knuckled grip. By the way, this is confusing language for us because it says he's in the form of God. Typically, we use the word form negatively, right? Like, you know, I, I was on on Halloween. I was in the form of a ghost, right? Because I put a, a sheet on my head. That's a ridiculous example, but we use the word form negatively to refer to when something embraces an external appearance that isn't in fitting with the inner nature. But the way that Paul uses this word form here is the idea of a state externally that's visible that's completely in keeping with the inner essence as well not opposed to it when it's saying he's in the form of god it's saying he really is as to his nature god he's fully divine an example of how paul uses this word is in romans chapter 12 verse 2 be transformed by the renewing of your mind well when paul says be transformed he's not saying be something you're not right he's saying be more of what you are in Christ, right? And so the the idea of form here is that Jesus really was God. And this proves also, by the way, this is important in doing apologetics that Jesus personally existed prior to his incarnation as man. Because here's Jesus existing, really existing and counting, considering. So he has a real personal existence. When it says he didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, the idea is not that he wasn't equal to God and he didn't want to be equal to God, right? It's not clinching after something that you don't have yet. It's not trying to attain divinity. The idea is that he already has full divinity, but he's not he's not white-knuckle gripping it, right? He's not holding on to it selfishly. He's holding it open-handedly. He's willing to surrender it. And so that's the first level. It's just his decision in the mind of Christ. Before he did anything, that he wasn't going to hold on to his status and his divine privileges, even though he was, in fact, equal with God in every respect. The second level of humility is that he emptied himself in verse seven by taking on the form of a servant. So let's just look at the fact that he emptied himself. There's another area that could be confusing to us because typically when we talk about emptying, that's that's a loss of something, right? That's that's a that's a negative. We're losing something in us. The word here where we get emptied is kenosin, ekinosin, or kenosis would be emptying, would be the the, the noun form of that. And so there's some that would subscribe to what theologians have called kenotic theory, right? That takes this word kenosis, that Jesus was emptied, and it, it, it applies that as a theory to who Christ was. And the claim is that Jesus forfeited his actual divinity. Canonic right, theory would be the idea that Jesus gave up his divinity. He stopped being God in order to become man. You say, well, who believes that? Uh, Bill Johnson from Bethel Church. Chris Valentine from Bethel Church. Kenneth Copeland. Most of the Word of Faith preachers. Why am I naming names? Because particularly in the Word of Faith movement, where it's all about how man can take control of his wealth and his destiny, when somebody de-God's Jesus... It's the setup so that they can deify man. So the idea is, hey, Jesus was purely human, wasn't divine, and yet look what he attained. You can too. It's deceptive. We do not embrace canonic theory. Jesus did not stop being God. He retained his full deity even while he was in human flesh. So, what does it mean that he emptied himself? Notice that the word empty, kenosis in Greek, is linked to that word vain glory that we saw earlier. Vain, it's the same root there, empty, vain. The idea is that Jesus took his glory and he made it empty. He made it of no account. He disregarded it. And so he, all of his divine rights and privileges, he had them, but he made himself nothing. Paul didn't. Uh, Jesus didn't literally empty himself, but Paul is using this to explain how Jesus veiled himself. Think of the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17 and in other places in the Gospels where just for that brief moment of Jesus' life, you saw the veil pulled back and you saw all of this glory radiating and then it's, it's instantly covered and Jesus appeared completely normal as a human being after that point. Jesus didn't walk around with a halo everywhere he went, unlike the Renaissance painting depictions of him. But there was that moment where the veil, the curtain, was was pulled back and you could see the glory that was really there. That's the idea here. Jesus didn't lose his divine nature. He added a human nature that veiled the glory that was there. And so first, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped even though he was in the form of God. Second, he emptied himself. Third level, he takes on, verse 7, the form of a servant. And just a note here, and you'll see it possibly with a footnote in your Bible, that, that this word here is also bondservant or slave. He took the form of a slave, not just a household servant. A slave is someone with no rights of their own, who lives completely for the interests of someone else. He took the form of a slave or a bondservant. The fourth level of humiliation, He was born in the likeness of men. Verse 7 and verse 8, He was found in human form. And so, Jesus is humbled, not just on the cross, He's humbled the second that He steps into the virgin's womb. Right? He's humbled the moment He incarnates Himself as a zygote. It's amazing. You You have God the Son taking on human flesh, adding this human nature to himself, in no way detracting from his divinity, but not availing himself of it in any way. He took on human form. The fifth level, he humbles himself by becoming obedient. In verse 8, notice Paul is telling us that we should, in humility, verse 3, count others more significant than ourselves. Now you hear this being brought in, the fact that Jesus humbled Himself as well. This is how we are to be humble To humble ourselves first by becoming obedient So jesus took his human will that he had as a human being and he made it subservient to the divine will He submitted his will to the father while he was in his human flesh Hebrews chapter 5 verses 8 through 9 explain this although he was a son He learned obedience through what he suffered And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He didn't have to make his will, his human will, that is, submitted to the divine will. And yet he chose to do so. And how far did he obey? Verse 8 tells us the sixth level of humility here. To the point of death. He obeyed all the way up to the pain line. And that, in, that perfect, impeccable obedience, by the way, is what's counted to us. That he was willing to obey even to the point where it nailed him to a tree. Of course, we should ask, do we obey to the point of pain and death? Hebrews 12 enjoins us. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. God calls us to obey and to resist sin even to the point where it hurts. Jesus obeyed even to the point of death. And of course we're reminded from other passages of Scripture right that he didn't complain about it. He didn't whine or mope about it. It's a pastor that I know who, who recently made the point that you know because our culture, let's face it, our culture glorifies any kind of victimhood that it can find, but there's only ever been one true victim in human history and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he didn't file any grievances. He didn't start any hashtag campaigns either. He obeyed to the point of death, the seventh level, even death on a cross. This is the bottom, this is the the depths of humiliation, of utter shame and filth. You should hear the heightening effect there, even the fact that Paul repeats death, even death on a cross. This word cross, this idea of the cross is it's not just like us talking about the electric chair, but it's it's not the kind of thing that you brought up in polite company in the Greco-Roman world. It's almost a cuss. The Roman rhetorician Marcus Cornelius Fronto, writing in the second century, said this. And, and hang with me. It's a this is old writing. It's a little bit hard, but. He wrote, he who explains there the Christian ceremonies by reference to a man punished by extreme suffering for his wickedness and to the deadly wood of the cross appropriates fitting altars for reprobate and wicked men that they may worship what they deserve. Well, in the context of what this Roman rhetorician is writing. He's accusing the Christians of worshiping severed mule heads and and having weird rituals with babies at night, and it's 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 bizarre. He clearly doesn't understand Christianity. But then he says here, it makes sense that they would worship a man flayed alive on a bloody piece of wood because that's what they deserve too. That's what he's saying here. This was shameful. This was disgraceful. You know, we're so desensitized to the cross, and we see Roman Catholic crucifixes everywhere, we're used to seeing the sanitized version of Jesus, but this was a bloody, shameful thing. I don't know if, particularly when ISIS was really in the headlines a few years ago, if you remember seeing some of the images of actual crucifixions that ISIS was committing, but nobody there had halos. Nobody in those images was glowing. They were revolting to look at, and they weren't near as gruesome as what the Romans were doing. Far from it. The cross was a gruesome thing and Jesus humbled himself to that point. Again, a reminder that Christianity is about love, but not just love in the abstract. Christianity is not about emotion or a philosophy or a psychology of religion. It's based on what Jesus did in history in embracing this piece of wood for us. This message of the cross sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness, folly to Gentiles. 1 Corinthians one twenty-three. It's foolishness. At least it looks that way from the human perspective. There's no salvation, though. There's no forgiveness. There's no gospel. There's no good news apart from the cross. And for all of us sitting here, by the way, the most important thing about us this morning is what comes to mind and what comes to heart when we look to the cross. When we think of the cross, what do we feel? What do we think about it? What do we believe about it? What do we do with it? Either we embrace it as the place where our sin was nailed, or we reject it as foolishness as the world does. And astonishingly, this is the example of humility that Paul sets before us. We're not supposed to do anything for our own empty glory because Christ emptied His glory for us by veiling it in human flesh. But the good news is that the story doesn't stop there. Because if it did, that would be a little heavy, a little weighty. The story doesn't end there for Jesus and it doesn't end there for us either. And so the third point this morning that we'll look at in the remaining verses is the exaltation of Christ. Which gives us hope in humility, and it unifies us as worshipers. And this is important because obedience, as we're seeing, humility in the body of Christ, with our other Christians that aren't easy to get along with, can be hard. It can be deadly. Humility in the blueprint of Jesus can be deadly. But there's no such thing as dead end obedience. Because Jesus was raised. He's our model. So verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him. God honors obedience. He honored the obedience of Christ. He raised Him from the dead. He honors our obedience too if we're in Christ and if we're trying to imitate Christ. He's highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. That glory that He emptied and He laid aside is returned to Him. He's given him the name that is above every name. What is that name? You might think, well, it's the name of Jesus. He says the name of Jesus. But what is the name that Jesus has? It's not just the proper name Jesus. You know, if I, if I pull out my, my driver's license, you'll see the name Alexander on there. And it's not just referring to, to the proper first name of Jesus, but particularly because you see in verse 11, everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The name that restores the glory to Christ that he had before his incarnation is Lord, kurios in Greek. And when Paul says Lord, he's saying master, he's saying cosmic Lord, benevolent dictator of the universe and everything that exists, right? But he's not even just Saying that, because for the Jews, just like us, for our English Bibles, when we look at the Old Testament, and when we see LORD in all caps, we know that that's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, that the Jews revered so much that they themselves replaced it with the Hebrew Adonai, Lord. When Paul says Jesus is Lord, he's not just saying that, hey, Jesus is boss, but also that Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And so... He quotes from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We were reading Isaiah in our morning reading here. And you see how God is serious about telling the pagan nations that a day of reckoning is coming. In part because of their idolatry. God will not share his glory with anyone else. And in Isaiah chapter 40 through 45, there's what many scholars call the the trial of the false gods. So all of these other pagan nations worshiping their God, God says to them basically, none of these compare to me. And like a prosecutor, he just lays charges against them one by one and shows that they're all just empty pieces of wood and stone. And so, towards the end of this section, of Scripture in Isaiah 45, Yahweh says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue swear allegiance. And Paul applies these serious words from Yahweh, rebuking the gods of the nations to the man, Jesus Christ, a mere 20 years after he walked this earth. How crazy is that? Jesus is this God that everyone bows to. He says, Every knee should bow, every tongue confess, Don't read too much into the word should there in the English language. That doesn't mean that they might bow someday. It means that whenever this name is announced, knees bow. It's a timeless action. At the name of Jesus, knees bow. Tongues confess. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. So in heaven. Obviously, all of heaven worships God. And all of heaven worships His Son. On earth, though, every knee will bow. Should be encouraged by this. The great commission will be finished. Every knee, dead and alive, will bow. Habakkuk chapter two, verse 14, tells us, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will be a day that every single knee bows, even as they already do. And even under the earth, the damned will have to acknowledge the lordship of Christ even in dread, even unwillingly, even they will have to fess up that Jesus is Lord. Revel in that. That your Jesus, your Jesus will be adored and trembled by every soul in the universe as the name of Jesus ripples throughout the cosmos. Enjoy that fact. Savor it. And let that feed our unity as a church. How stupid is it for us to make eyes at each other across the sanctuary? Can you believe so and so today? All of our knees are bowing to this Lord in humble adoration together. Like soldiers in line in an army. In formation together. Verse 11, Jesus Christ is Lord, He's kurios, He's Yahweh, He's God. We're not. And this phrase here, Jesus Christ is Lord, is probably the earliest creedal statement, earliest statement of faith that the church ever came up with. You have statements of faith in church history that are volumes long, and you have some that can fit on the back of a napkin, and this is one of them. And yet you see the whole Gospel in here, because if Jesus is Lord... Then that demands that I submit to Him. And if I submit to Him, the good news is that it's the one whose Lord is Jesus, the one who died for me to atone for everything that I did before I submitted to Him as Lord and after enduring. The whole gospel is caught up in this statement Jesus Christ is Lord. And finally, to the glory of God the Father. So, question. How. Does this glorify the Father? Sounds like it's all about Jesus. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father, Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 9. The gospel itself, even before it's about saving sinners, is about what the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is doing in time and space to glorify Himself by saving people. In verse 8, Jesus obeyed the Father to the point of death. In verse 9, it's God the Father who exalted Jesus. And so Jesus is the one who brings glory to the Father. In verse 11, all of God is glorified in this. And we ought to ask ourselves as we try to model this for our humility, even Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords is aiming after someone else's glory. His Father's glory. So how much more should we in our ministries, our lives, our homes, aim for the glory of another? Our unity demands humility from us. Christ's humiliation is the blueprint and His exaltation is our hope that our humility isn't in vain. And it's pride leveling because we all admit that He's Lord and we're not. So our unity depends on having this mind of Christ in us as well. So three points for application as we close in prayer. First, Jesus is Lord. He died and rose to take the punishment sinners deserve. So what are you going to do with him? Not what have you done with Him in the past as a kid when you prayed a prayer, but what are you going to do with Him today? What are you going to do with His foolish-looking cross? Embrace Him as your Lord and Savior. Second, we have to humble ourselves and serve. Put God's glory first like Jesus did. Others' needs above our own, like they're more important to us, and then our needs last. And that will maintain the unity that Christ purchased for us. And third is just that we ought to be encouraged. Obedience can be costly. Jesus proves that for us, that obedience and humility are costly, even deadly, but not dead end. That there's glory on the other side if we humble ourselves. So Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You raised Jesus, that He is Lord. We thank You that the day is coming that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Your Son is Lord to Your glory. Lord, help us to esteem others as more important than ourselves. Help us to lay aside our own glory much in the same way as Jesus laid aside His glory. Let us see our church unified as we all bow the knee to the same Lord and Master. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.